Good evening, you're all listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight we have the long-awaited Crusader Kings 2 show, and so we are joined by our friend, Civilization V designer and Starduck designer, John Schaefer. John, thanks for coming. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, we're also joined by freelance writer and RPG strategy gamer extraordinaire, Rowan Kaiser. Rowan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. N- nothing too formal planned. We're just going to uh, sort of chat about Crusader Kings 2 and, and get everyone's impressions. Now, um, you know, Rowan, I guess we'd start. I'd, I'd like to start with you because uh, you reviewed this for GameSpy, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And, uh, you know, why, why don't you take us through your impressions? Because actually, because I, I remember you, you, you. The game made a bit of a rough first impression on you, but it seems like it brought you around. Yeah, um, I didn't actually know that it was. A, one of the Europa Universalist style games at first. So I click on it and I see this huge density of buttons and you know this 27 level tutorial and I'm just like what have I gotten myself into? After I start clicking around and realize oh hey this is just like EU only this is the medieval one which I, I had heard about but the name hadn't actually registered in my head. Um, then I got into it a lot easier but there are still all the Europa Universalist style um, works would be the nicest way to put it, but or interface density or difficulty would be perhaps more accurate. So that was, you know, that made the first hour or two hours kind of a pain. No, there were still things I was discovering later. Now, just to hit that tutorial a bit, did did you actually use that tutorial? Did it actually help you? Yeah, it. I think that it showed a, it did a decent job of showing me what sort of things I should be looking for. I don't know that it would have been helpful had I not played Europa Universalist before, but once I figured that out, I was able to see, okay, this is what's different about this game compared to this other one. I played EU2 a whole bunch about six months ago, so I was pretty into that mode, and, you know, okay, in Medieval I have to spend a lot more time on the family dynamics. So it, it was actually helpful, even if it was confusing just to navigate on its own. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my impressions from the tutorial was just how challenging it was to actually get through it. Um, it was it was nice that they they tried to m- give players the option to kind of bounce around to different tutorial uh, options as they were going. But a lot of times it didn't make sense and you would go forward to some different category and you would have no way of getting back to what you were doing because uh, for, for people who haven't played the game or the tutorial, there's basically three levels in like economics and then three levels in military and that, and that sort of thing. So you might get to military level two and then click on economics level two and then there was no way to get back to military level three. So <laughs> it, was a little, uh, it was a little unique in that sense. Yeah, I don't know. So, so I guess that... that leads me to one one of the one of my recurring issues and also joys with paradox games i guess is that um so if you take that if you take that tech example for instance it's a really interesting way at showing how technology migrates in the medieval period right uh what what you don't have is a traditional tech tree where you're just like you know where you're just like plotting forward and like this leads to that and you can sort of perfectly control what sort of discoveries are going to drop out. What you have instead is this idea that, like, all discoveries are local, right? So you can have, like, you know, so, so in one part of Europe, they can be making, like, huge advances in military technology and tactics. And in another part of Europe, they're really learning about, like, 
you know, building a stronger civic society or something. And if you're not in that neighborhood, it's not like you, you know, you can't really research that. You, you kind of, you know, what's kind of happening is like technology is sort of like spreading like ink blots across the map. <laughs> but at the same time, what that leads to is this, this technology system that I found like it was interesting, but I'm not really sure I got anything out of messing around with it. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think it's it was um, I think it actually speaks very much to the overall philosophy for Crusader Kings, which is you're more experiencing the game and kind of letting it flow around you, and you take advantage of opportunities as they arise more so than you're actually shaping and guiding and making really formalized concrete plans about I want to do this then I want to do this instead you're more waiting for things to kind of happen and then you you kind of jump on jump on the bandwagon when the opportunity presents itself so I think that kind of fits within the theme of 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 Crusader Kings I don't know if it's as much fun uh not being able to have really any control I mean you I guess you can do a couple things but it's it's definitely much less concrete than um, what you'll see in a lot of other strategy games. Yeah, I, I mean, it leads to it leads to the odd, interesting scenario. Certainly, I mean, one neat side effect of of this te- of the way they handle technology in this game is that so it it helps if your lands like if you can because so much of the game revolves around like jockeying for position and trying to get new lands and and we'll get into that because really that's like 95% of the game so mm-hmm. we're kind of off already off on a weird tangent uh in classic 3MA <laughs> style uh but one of the neat things is so it can be really advantageous if you're looking around the map and there's like a way you could conceivably get control of a province near where kind of the technological action is that can be a huge advantage right you know, if, mm. you know, when those moments arise, suddenly it's like really crucial to get that, you know, to get that plot of land outside Paris, because you know, oh my God, the you know the the commerce and banking technology you're going to be able to sort of steal from that area uh, is going to be great. And then the other thing, of course, you can do, uh, and it's a little riskier, is that you can send, I think it's your spy, uh, your spy master out to go steal technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it seems like a big part of the game is just jumping on opportunities like that when when you can. If the situation warrants it, you got to be ready to to do whatever whatever can help you out. But but going back to the going back to the interface thing, because uh, because I agree with you, Ryan. Like th- there is there is a style to the to the interface in Paradox games. There there is there, there's I always feel like there's a lot of fat on these interfaces. And they yeah. actually have the effect of making it maybe hard to identify which displays uh, you're going to really need the most often. Like, there's a lot of like ways to get tertiary information, and it's right there up on your screen all the time. So it always looks like you know carries like equal importance. It's like one button among many. Uh, but you know, in practice, there's a few thing. There's a few ways you need to look at this world. There's a few pieces of information you need on hand all the time. And you kind of just, this is, I mean, this is the way it worked for me. Uh, you kind of just have to feel your way toward what really matters because it, it, I don't feel the interface was necessarily like cluing me into that. Yeah, I think the, the example or the, the component of the interface that bugged me the most just from a kind of aesthetic perspective was how you built the buildings in the provinces. 
Because everything else, you go click on the top left corner of the screen, and there, there's a drop-down menu or something pops up in the middle from those buttons. But with the building of your um, new buildings or castles or whatever, you have to click on the province and then click on the build button there. And you build those each individually, which is totally the opposite of the way the technology works. And it just, it confused me and made it feel, I don't know, kind of like a relic of this almost 15-year-old game engine that they're working in this way when um, those aren't the really interesting parts of the game. Like, the really interesting parts of the game are trying to figure out how you can expand or how you can increase your prestige or whatever. And in one of, in the technology case, you have virtually no control over it. And in the building case, you have, like, a civilization level of potential micromanaging control over it. And I just... It, it baffled me how those two things were supposed to be part of the same game or design aesthetic. <laughs> I, something I will say is that the UI is definitely improved over earlier Paradox games, if only because um, two things in particular stood out to me. One was... Uh, the tooltips on various things in the game are excellent uh, yeah. and provide a ton of information. Um, so if you ever want to know what this thing does or who this person is, you can you can mouse over it and, and find out. Um, you may not understand how it fits within the big picture, but you at least have an idea of what that, that local part of the game actually does. Um, and the other thing I... I really liked was uh, the, the hint screens, which appeared the first time you uh, opened up something. And I think that was almost uh, a better tutorial than the tutorial itself, because you could just kind of, you know, mess around with different parts of the game, and it would give you enough information to get rolling. Um, that having been said, I think there were a couple things with the UI that stood out to me, uh, having been a long-time uh, player of Paradox games. Um, the one that I think everybody who is in that same boat will recognize is uh, the default message notification settings. They just, every single time a Paradox game comes out, I just, I, I don't understand how they decide which messages show up and which messages pause the game and which messages are hidden. It just almost seems random. <laughs> Yeah, I, I will say I think they've done a better job here. I definitely felt like I was, I definitely felt like I was not missing as many crucial events abroad as I often do in uh, Paradox games. But at, at, you know, at, at the same time, like it's a big improvement from say like default EU three, right, where the game <laughs> would run for like three seconds and then it would stop you with some other like com completely BS message, right? Like, you know, mm. um, Nowheresville and Bumblefuck have gone to war. Like, I don't <laughs> care. Uh, but so I, I didn't, I didn't find that's that that's so much an issue. And, and I do, and I do think, uh, yeah, the tool tips, the, the tool tips are really good. And yeah, the first several hours I was playing the game, actually, I left those uh, tutorial like windows up. So whenever I opened the new panel, the, the that extra panel showed up explaining to me exactly what the hell I was looking at, and that was and that was really useful and helped me sort of uh, learn the game as I played it. And really, that's kind of where I've come out with a lot of Paradox games. In fact, is that you know for all their efforts to um, you know to to do better with their manuals, to do better with their tutorials, uh, and and they have they have made strides there. But I think partly it's just the nature of their games that. You know, really, what really like my learning process with these is I play them, you know, I start to figure them out, then I run into something that I just absolutely can't fathom, 
and then it's time to go to the manual and figure out exactly what the hell's going on. Um, but you know, and and that's, and that's fine, but it also presumes a lot of interest on my part, which I think is a gamble that Paradox can make, right? Like these are games that Paradox assumes that if you're sitting down and playing it, uh, you know, you are going to move heaven and earth to understand it and enjoy it. Uh, whereas I think a lot of the strategy games come with, uh, you know, maybe less trust in the audience and some ways that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that also goes back to uh, what I mentioned earlier. In that, the, the way I see the paradox games is that they're they're games you experience more than you kind of jump into and you know really take a hold of the reins and and direct everything that's going on. You kind of you know jump in a little bit and then get your feet wet and things happen and you learn about what's going on very gradually and you get to a point where you have a good feel for the game but even then it's it's still something where you're you're not as in control as you might be in in a lot of other strategy games what I, what i think is most frustrating for me these days about paradox's uh interfaces uh, isn't you know it isn't the the plethora of buttons and overlays you know you can you know eventually i figure that stuff out what i really wish i saw more from in a paradox game is I wish almost like they were designed a little more like in uh, web browsers where what I really need, like a lot of, a lot of your time in a paradox game and especially crusader Kings two is spent, you know, sort of like you're going through a Wikipedia article, you know, you're following, you know, you're following this link, you're following that link, you're making connections, you're, you know, going from jump to jump to jump, but it all starts in some, you know, some, there, there's some piece of relevant information you're looking at and there's a reason you're looking it up. And what drives me crazy here is that there's a lot of great tools for navigating family trees and understanding relationships, but every time I'm using them, they keep taking me through, like I'm only looking at one character at a time, right? And yeah. what I really want to be able to do is sort of like tile a bunch of windows at, you know, as I figure out like exactly how I'm going to make a series of like, t- you know, strategic marriages to get control of someone's lands or to figure out, you know, if I go to war with this vassal, who can he call in? And that's something that, you know, I need to be able to see the big picture. And it's kind of like, you know, Paradox gives me these good tools, but these tools like exist through this narrow little window in your monitor and you have to keep like moving the frame around. And that's, and that's not really, you know, that, that, that's not quite the game they've designed. Like, this game is all about it making these connections and being able to see the big picture. But their interface doesn't necessarily let me do that. To give a simple example of that, when you're trying to arrange a marriage, half of the wife's stats go onto the husband's stats, and so it's worthwhile to see the husband's stats and the wife's stats at the same time, and that's not always possible. Yeah, or just in the act of making the marriage, right? Uh, you have to, you can get to a marriage one of a couple ways. You can uh, just like find a partner for some, you know, you, there's a quick way to do it. You can find a partner for one of your family members and a bunch of eligible matches come up that are pretty much guaranteed yes answers. Uh, but the other thing you can do is you can look at a noble and, uh, you know, try to arrange a marriage. And then you're looking at the entire like court that's in the, you know, the entire noble court, all the eligible you know, marriage partners that are members of this court. And, you know, the final way of doing it is you look at the character you want a character to marry. Uh, so let's, you know, call it the marriage target. You're looking at the target, and uh, you, can, you, can try to, you can try to arrange the marriage from there. 
But, you know, the, the thing is, though, so what you got is, like, the simple act of marriage involves, like, two or three people. <laughs> and you need to be able to look at like what those people are and like what you know what they're up to and where they are and what they're doing. And every <laughs> the sheer number of times I lost track of the woman I wanted to marry or the guy I wanted to marry, um, you know, because I was like, wait, now who the hell is this guy? Because somehow I found myself like staring at the character info page for like the aunt or something like that, uh, which is yeah, it could be useful information. But let's not forget, you know, eye on the prize here. <laughs> it also doesn't help that sometimes the uh, the aunt and uh, her sister look identical. Oh yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> a lot of the the faces are pretty good though. I'll, I'll give I'll give Paradox that. Like, yeah, I, they are. I, I, at least in my family and like the nobles, I was I cared the most about. I had a pretty good sense for like what everyone looked like, and you know, even now thinking back, I've got like these character faces in my head. Uh, so it's, it's not too bad. But it there there it can be difficult to see what you know what vaguely Byzantine looking chick um, <laughs> you know which one uh, which one you originally wanted to marry yeah. so that that's kind of a recurrent problem and you know it reminds me this is something I actually mentioned when I reviewed Sengoku uh, is that you know so like all the Uni- Europa Universalis games so much of the emphasis is on the map you know the the physical space here. But when you're talking about a game that's about like no, you know, noble marriages and like feudal politics, uh, you know, the, the territory is not the map. Uh, you know, it, it kind of doesn't matter where someone is located in France or, or what lands they have because the game you're really playing is uh, a Game of Thrones. But no, seriously, the game you're actually mm-hmm. playing is about who's going to marry who, who's going to have legitimate claims on something. And in terms of that game, you know, the map is almost irrelevant at times. So it shouldn't have three-quarters of the interface space. But then there are times when the map is relevant. Yes. Such as when you actually do that civil war. But I, I, I think part of it is, it's not that Paradox makes incredibly complex games when you actually get down to the actions that you take in Crusader Kings 2. I don't think that it's a huge amount deeper than a Total War game, and I don't think it's probably less deep than a Civilization game, but they're, they have this you know constantly running real-time engine, and they have this way that you want to see the grand strategy of the map, and it, I think it kind of puts them in this corner, but this is one of the only ways that they really can do it. Yeah, and they, I mean, they're 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 kind of repurposing the EU three engine, right? Like every every time out, it's like it's a different game, different focus, but it's still relying on sort of the underlying, uh, you know, the under the underlying software. I get what you mean, and I and I will I agree with you actually. Like Crusader Kings two, I I don't, I don't agree. Victoria, did you play Victoria two? No, I Crusader Kings and Europa Universalis are the only ones that I've done. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I would say those those do tend to be a little a little simpler. Uh, I, I will say Victoria Two was. Uh, John, did you play that? I haven't. I haven't actually. I've I've had it on my list for a while. <laughs> yeah, it, it belongs on the list. It's just it's it's a bit much. Like it's it's partly a trade game. It's partly um, you know, it's a global economic sim, and yeah, it's that's a game that can itself a little bit but uh yeah what, what you're doing yeah what you're doing here isn't that complicated um but we should probably you know so we should we should get into you know really the the, the meat of the game this is this is a family-based strategy game 
you know one of the one of the things that I I really agreed with in, in your review, uh, Rowan, was you know y- y- you pointed out that the fact that this is about a fa- about families really solved a lot of the problems you find in like uh, long form strategy games where they get too easy or too impossibly hard. Uh, that you know the 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 subject matter kind of keeps uh, Crusader Kings to an appropriate level. Um, care to get into that a little bit? Like, you know, how, like, how does that work? Well, in a mechanical sense, one of the, the simplest ways that it works is that you're the head of the dynasty, you're the duke, or the count, or the king, or even the emperor, and you have a whole bunch of vassals underneath you who some of them like you, some of them don't like you. And the longer that your reign goes, the more they like you. So, you have a king who gets slowly more and more liked, which means that he or she, you can have a queen, um, possesses the power to be more and more ambitious. Then all of a sudden that person dies, and they may have twin sons, and whichever one you have take over the dynasty suddenly has doesn't have that cushion of having ruled for 50 years or whatever. In fact, they have a negative cushion. There's like a, a negative 10 um, new ruler effect. And then they all of a sudden have to put down rebellions and all kinds of um, problems that they start having with their vassals, which means that you kind of have to do a reset. And, you know, I've had kings who just get kicked out. Like, I had a fantastic king who had a single daughter that served as an heir, and she was just hated by everyone. And so she got kicked out, my kingdom shrunk, and I had to start again. And it was great, because, you know, it was constantly challenging, and it fit the sort of overall game's narrative. Like, this this is something that could happen. It's not something that makes me say, the game is broken, I have to stop. It's like, okay, this is another interesting chapter in my family's history. Yeah, I think that's a that's a huge advantage and something that really separates the game from just about anything that's out there is the focus on the characters much more than than really anything else. Um, I think it allows you to do a lot of different things. You can have a lot more randomness in in how the game plays out. Uh, for example, maybe your king just contracts a disease and dies, and he's just gone. And in a lot of games, if something that bad happened it would be really frustrating and annoying and people would hate it. But because the game is focused so much on characters and actual people and, you know, people really can catch diseases and die. And you know that every single character in the game is going to have a a certain time to, to play and then, and then they go away. So the fact that that's acceptable, I think really, expands the game much more than you would see in in something like EU3, which is much more about the kingdoms and the map itself. Did either of you ever reload a game when something terrible happened? Yes. Okay. I, I think I did, but only because I didn't understand the mechanic, and once I understood it, then then I was fine with whatever happened happened. But when when something happened and I thought the game was going to do something else, that's when I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going back. <laughs> so where, where I reloaded is once, um, once I declared war on a vassal and basically... And basically hadn't done my homework, and so he had, like, it turns out, he, like, 
I'd forgotten all the marriage alliances that I made for him when I was yeah. playing the part of his father. Uh, so I declared war on him, and then suddenly it was like half the kingdom was on me, and I was like, okay, uh, I should have just, if I'd looked at who his, you know, connect, like what his connections were, uh, it's sort of like, sort of like medieval LinkedIn, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if I'd just taken five seconds and looked at the ramifications of starting a fight with him, I wouldn't have done it. So like within like two minutes, I was like, okay, this, this is, was a suicidal war. I wouldn't, uh, you know, I'm just going to go back and undo that. Uh, the the other time I reloaded turned uh, that's a little ethically murky for me. Like, what happened was I was playing the game. Some good things were going on. Some things were really working well, and then I had to quit the game and I didn't save. And so what I had was an autosave. And when I like uh, you know, and it's like all I'd lost was like maybe a couple minutes of progress. So I reload. Except this time, none of that stuff happens. Like this time, it's it's like the Grim Reaper, uh, you know, was was the guest of the family dinner because like suddenly heirs are dropping, uh, people are betraying me, my king just gets pissed off and like you know tries to seize my lands or something. And I was like, okay, uh, this is this is not this is you know, I, you know, the other game basically I felt it was like it was sort of rewarding me for all my plans, and this time it was just like the cruel hand of fate. Uh, wrecking my game, so I reloaded. And at that point, it turned into this sort of like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna reload this until until good things start happening again. So it took me a couple <laughs> tries to to navigate those waters. Uh, those are the only times though that I actually reloaded. Most of the time, when something went badly wrong, uh, you know, I just kind of rolled with it. I think I think what you just mentioned brings up an interesting point, which is uh, I think even in some cases where if you have to go back and play through something and the first time you played, bad things happened, but the second time, good things happened, I think even then, I mean, probably not for everybody, but there, there would be some temptation to go back and have the, the story play out, quote-unquote, the right way, and... I think that's another thing that really makes this game feel unique is that it it it's it's like a story that you're you're experiencing firsthand and when something doesn't follow what what it was doing the first time it, it's almost like it's being rewritten. So when I compare it to EU3 where 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 EU3 falls down for me eventually is that there's simply not enough you know random things happen you know, like sometimes the you know you just get a bad roll of the dice and you're in deep trouble in EU three. But the longer an EU three game goes on, like the more you're just like single mindedness of purpose, uh, basically you know breaks the game. Like if you start a game in what year does it start? Thirteen ninety nine. So let's say fourteen hundred. If you start a game in like fourteen hundred is France. And you're like, okay, so here's my here's my overarching game plan. I'm gonna drive the English out, and then I'm going to take down Burgundy, and then I'm gonna like drive into Spain. You know, now you know stuff might happen along the way to sort of change your plans, but ultimately you've got like you know 200 years worth of game where you're like, okay, this is you know this is the game plan. And all my decisions are going to be to these ends, and eventually. You know, the game just kind of can't counter the fact that I'm able to plan over this endless period, and the AI really can't. Uh, and, and so eventually I hit the point in EU3 when I'm just, like, rolling everybody, and, you know, I've kind of become this unstoppable force. And then the game isn't very much fun. <laughs> um, what I love about Crusader Kings 2, and it's it's probably, uh, you know, it's... 
I hesitate to say it's 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 too much of a thematic issue because really I think you know you can make a lot of strategy games where crazy and convincing bad things happen. But I guess in a game about family, it's easier because everyone knows, you know, understands inherently that families are 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 all kinds of messed up and irrational. <laughs> um, you know, my, my grandfather, he's like ninety two. He just he just announced that he doesn't want to be buried next to my grandmother. Because uh, you know, she—I never knew that woman. She ruined my life, and it, it, she—you know—she died a few years ago. Uh, and we're all like, "What?" Yeah, you know, like I mean, we, we like we knew their marriage wasn't the happiest or anything, but it was like it's just this random, crazy, like pent up grievances that nobody knew about for fifty years. That's family, you know. That's and now now add to that like money and politics and land, and you've got a recipe for things to get really ruined. And that's one of the things I really love about um. You know, Crusader Kings Two, is that you know, like you you've got you've got this mechanism for all these things can force you to move in this really irrational direction. Like you know, when your son inherits, uh, his sister hates him, and she's going to do everything she can to ruin to, to ruin his life. So you're sitting there like, okay, my son's going to inherit the kingdom, but his sister's going to inherit this this key province, and she's probably going to be trying to kill him the entire time. What do I do about that? And you know, that's an interesting scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the. Uh... The, the family system is is incredibly interesting and really I, I mean it's it's what makes the game so much fun um, in in uh, the first game that I was playing I played as Sweden and I had a, uh, a brother-in-law who was a pagan and who also happened to be insane and repeatedly exiled his wives and I did not know what to do with the man and it's just everybody I've talked to who's played the game has had some story about some crazy character that's doing something or somebody that's trying to kill everyone, and it's it really brings a lot of life into the game. Uh, I I will I will say though that um, uh, rooting rooting for people to die before they have children is a very odd feeling when I uh, when I look at it from above and be a little retrospective. I'm like, well. I feel kind of dirty right now. No, but the, the Turkish system where the the heir inherits and then all his brothers are killed, it like it makes so much sense when you're playing this game, and it's so creepy. <laughs> I know it does. Well, and and that's and that's the great thing, and you know what the, what this game does such a great job of illustrating. This is one of the things I love about strategy games is they can sort of like illuminate truths like we have this idea in a feudal kingdom like you know why you know why are so many feudal rulers you know such absolute bastards you know like why aren't why aren't there more good kings like you know how hard can it be to basically not be an evil evil prick uh but you play this game and you realize that like you know there is no like there is no arbiter to say this is fair this is unfair there's no one there's there's no higher court to appeal to in this game, and so yeah, maybe except the Pope. Pardon? Except the Pope, but <laughs> that's, I mean. that's a problematic, and he's a son of a bitch too. But <laughs> no, so I mean, your your brother, you might be able to work things out with your brother, and he, you know, he rightfully inherited his lands. You're the you're the ruler of the duchy or the kingdom or whatever, and your brother, you know, has a smaller section, and it, you might be able to trust him. Things might work out. You might be able to repair that relationship. But what if you can't? And that and that question, you know, depending on its severity. You know, eventually you find yourself, you know, it's just better and safer and smarter for everyone. 
uh, to make the decision to clip the guy. Or, you know, one of the things that I've found, you know, happens in the waning years of one of my, uh, you know, patriarchs, you know, of one of my patriarchs' lives is that, um, you know, now it's like, you know, my, my Duke or whatever is like, you know, 65 years old or something. You know, he's, you know, he's, he's, sh- he's looking shaky and he's got his heir and he's got a few other, you know, potential heirs. And it's time to start disinheriting them. And giving their titles over to the son because you do not want you know you do not want them to be running their own independent branches of the family with lands that you spent you know you know in a lifetime or possibly a couple of lifetimes assembling under one ruler. But in, in practice, what you're doing is you're kind of you know you're, you're stripping your sons of their own ranks that are rightfully theirs, and then when your heir inherits, uh, you're possibly you know holding a gun to their head and throwing them in jail. And, uh, you know, playing the part of the tyrant. <laughs> and that's all the smart play. Yeah, it's it's a very weird feeling when you have uh, one ruler that's really, really close with an individual. And uh, they're, they're really good friends. And then your ruler dies and uh, the, the throne passes to his son. And the son and this other guy that you've been used to dealing with, they just hate each other's guts. And it really flips. It really flips things, and you you have to really reconsider what your strategy is going to be, and it really makes the game interesting. Yeah, it's like you've started. It's like you started a completely different game. Every time yeah. you inherit, suddenly it's like you're in this bizarro land where, you know, your brother, who you you know was the leader of your armies and probably saved your you know kingdom a couple times during the wars. Uh, suddenly, you know, he's your uncle and he's plotting to murder you. <laughs> and it's, just, yeah, it's, 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 it's really bizarre. Cause it's like this discontinuity from everything you knew five minutes ago. Now you're playing someone else and here's the world from their perspective. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, a hundred years later, you find yourself in a rivalry with someone and you trace their family tree back and it goes back to someone that you were in a rivalry with, you know, the, your cousin in your family is now, um, you know, they've had three grandkids or three generations of children, and then you're, you're getting at the same guy. There's like a kind of a, a repetition to it that's not a not a bad sort of repetition. Um, cyclical, that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of that because you're right. I mean, at, at a certain at a certain level, like a lot of these families, you're going to be running into the same clans over and over again, and you know, it might not be like, you know, it might not be like a uh, Hatfield McCoy situation, but it's just, you know, by by virtue of your status, you know, or whatever, you know, you'll find yourself, you know, locking, you know, uh, locking horns with the same the same group of people. It's like, you know, you 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 know you 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 depose the uh, you depose some guy's grandfather. And then, you know, two generations later, uh, you're both about to go to war again. One of the things that I thought was most interesting about the game and separated it even out, even from the occasional strategy games that do kind of have the the varying difficulties, um, is that because you're playing the ruler of a dynasty instead of the head of a kingdom, you often have the interests of your character different from the interests of the kingdom and beyond that the interests of your character are different from you as uh, your interest as the player so for example 
my first game I played as Transylvania, which is one of the four major duchies in Hungary. And I was trying to... My, my chief rival was... I don't even remember what, what, which duchy it was, but they were also part of my family. So a few generations in, I'm discovering that one of the one of these other dukes is assassinating all of my children because he would be the rightful heir. And if I'm looking at it from my perspective as the player, if I let this guy inherit, all of a sudden I, the player, have two duchies. And I am by far the most powerful person in the kingdom, other than perhaps the king, but probably not even them. But if I let him do that, then he's pissing my character off. So I'm going to do whatever I can to try and take this guy out so that my character can have their rightful heirs and live a happy life of their own. That's a really interesting feeling in a strategy game where you're used to every single time you're doing what you're doing for the good of your country. That is such a good point and such a good example. I've actually come out on the other side of that decision. Like, I had a really... And I'm curious whether or not you guys sort of go method actor on your characters. But I had one really conniving ruler uh, who just really ruthlessly exploited uh, some political turmoil to, like, double the family's holdings. And it was awesome. And then, uh, you know, my, you know, one of one of my, you know, third or fourth in the line of succession uh, characters, yeah, was doing, was was pulling similar stuff, like plotting and, you know, offing the, uh, the odd air. And my initial response was, yeah, I've got to stop him. But I looked at the stats... And I thought, you know, it kind of showed an admirable initiative to go out and, like, start <laughs> capping airs. And so I kind of hit the brakes on it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to let my kid, I'm going to let my firstborn son die. Like, that, that kid's got, that, that kid's got a pair of crosshairs on his back. And, uh, you know, I can live with that because this, this new guy is going to take over is going to add some, you know, bring some new lands himself. And, uh, well, we certainly know he's got, he's got the right stuff as far as intrigue goes. <laughs> oh yes, yes. There's uh, there's there's definitely times when uh, whoever the uh, rightful heir is at the moment, you're you're looking at his stats or her stats, and you're just like, oh really? Come on! And and you're you're trying to find ways to uh, get around the uh, normal lines of succession. So in a way, you're actually plotting against your own dynasty, and it's it's definitely weird how the uh, the game promotes these sorts of weird decisions. Yeah, I was so disappointed when uh when my firstborn turns out to have been married to a lesbian. <laughs> like no, it, no heirs there. It was no, it was it was a seriously bad scene. because uh, cause his wife was like in an affair with like the Queen of Scotland or something like that. And I was like, This is this is going so wrong so fast. Like <laughs> But you plotting to kill each other and i was uh, i was like i think i think i basically have to nuke this entire like branch of the family from orbit uh so i yeah so so i intervened and uh got the wife killed and uh you know hooked him up with somebody else but you'll you'll never forget that game that's for sure there's not many there's not many uh there's not many games in general that you can talk about killing your uh yeah it's like i claudius in there it's it's (laughs) One of my favorite quirks of the game is that no matter what, who your character is, as long as they're married, they have the possibility for their intrigue goal to be kill their spouse. And often that's the only intrigue goal that they have. 
So if you want to, like, have your character develop this thing that the game tells you, it's good to have these goals and fulfill the goals. And I'm like, okay, well, all I have is kill my spouse, and I don't really think that's a good idea right now. <laughs> it's just always an option. It's always <laughs> exciting, though, when somebody really important pops up in that list. Yeah. Like, you know, that's like that's going to be pretty great, because it also usually means you positioned yourself well that you would actually have something to gain from it. Uh, whereas a lot of times I just want to kill somebody for some random grudge. Yeah, so so do you guys, going back to what, what Rowan was talking about, where you have your interests as the player, you have your interests as the character, what interests do you tend to follow? Do you, do you try, I mean, do you game it so that you look for what's the most strategically advantageous? Do you try to inherit your character's shoes? In this game, because there is so little long-term motivator or whatever, there, there's no the end screen. It just stops and gives you a completely ambiguous score. That's I, I was not really motivated to do anything for that score particularly. Because of that, I just stuck with the character. Like I, I chose to try and fight the guy who was trying to kill off my stuns, even though it might have been advantageous. Um, and I didn't like get into a huge method actor thing. I just I thought that would be the most fun way to play the game, and I I did enjoy it. So I guess it was. <laughs> For me, I actually originally approached it more like a Europa Universalis game, where uh, I started as Sweden and I decided I was you know my my the goal of Sweden was going to be to uh, to conquer all the uh, heathens to the north. And uh, that's the plan I started the game executing. But as I continued playing and I got more familiar with the game, I started to go more the path of actually following what these characters actually wanted to do. Um, Because that, I mean, that is the meat of the game. That is the focus. And uh, that was what was most fun. So over time, I actually found myself going that direction, even though that wasn't my, my original plan. I tended to try to sort of roll with the character, and partly that was enabled by all the choose-your-own-adventure decision points that are in this game, uh, where, you know, even if you, even if you try to keep one eye on the over, overall strategic picture, just this random stuff comes up that you've got to make some sort of decision about. And, and the, effect I, the effect that had on me is that it tended to create a story about, like, my character being at a certain place in his life. Like, a big one is, you know, sort of like midlife Anway. And how does your character handle that? And a lot of times it's completely irrelevant how you choose to go about that. But it's like, you know, it, does your character get into, what is it, like falconry or hunting? Uh, or, or maybe, you know, it's time to take on a life of, life of the mind. But either way, it, you know, so you, you find these little, like, vignettes where you have the decision to go hunting or start, you know, spend more time in the library or something. It may not really matter. But I find myself thinking about, you know, sort of what this character and I have been through together. And, you know, what, what his life has been. And, and from that point, like, I actually found it a little hard to sort of keep my eye on the prize all the time. And so there were times where, like, you know, you have a decision about whether or not your uh, your ruler takes a lover, for instance. And I had one guy who was just trapped in this loveless marriage with, you know, kind of a kind of a hateful woman, if you know, if we're being really honest. Uh, and I, I was just like, this is a terrible idea. This is a, this is a terrible, stupid idea. 
you know, it's you know, if this generates bastards or something, we're gonna have a major you know crisis on our hands. I was like, no, this guy, this guy would do it. This guy would do it. And I can't really blame him. So you know, give him <laughs> give him his give him his happiness. You know, in this affair, and we'll sort out the consequences later. Or you you take your young king to the grand tournament, and then he ends up with syphilis. That one's always fun. <laughs> Uh, I, I think uh, that's actually one of the flaws that I, I thought there was with the character system, and that is the limited number of events or, or perks that your your people can get. Um, I chose between falconry and hunting maybe six times. Yes. And uh, <laughs> after the first couple times, it was kind of like, yeah, okay, all right. And I think that's an area of the game that could have used more, you know, more meat on the bone. And hopefully that's something that they look to expanding down the road. Yeah, you know, remind me to ask, um, you know, the Paradox guys about this this weekend. I think we'll be seeing Chris King uh, on Sunday. But I seem to recall before this game was released that they were talking about just the absurd number of events that are in this game. And that may be true, but I worry that a lot of them are such low probability events uh, that they'll trigger, you know, a lot of them won't even trigger in the course of one playthrough. And so, yeah, I mean, I was constantly like, okay, hunting or falconry, hunting or falconry. And much rarer were, you know, truly interesting decisions and events that could, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, add a little more spice, albeit in, you know, a Cinemax sort of way. Yep. I, I knew a guy who went through the event files and he found an incest one, which ruined my joke about how it was Game of Thrones without dragons or incest, because apparently that is possible. But um, <laughs> all those things are in text files so that they can be modded and added. And uh, the version of Europa Universalist that I played was modded with, you know, hundreds of new event files and I think that would be even better here if they were well balanced because a lot of them like hunting or falconing whatever that's just kind of a choice to be a choice and there's some vague benefits to either um, but the ones that I saw the most were the uh, the wards or the children where it was like do you want this kid to be shy or not and, and those shy are more is bad well it, sometimes they were and sometimes they weren't like it was do you want this kid to be the shyness is just an overall negative trait so maybe if you had a ruler who you wanted to depose it someday who sent you an heir you would want the kid to be shy but other than that like i don't know why you there were so many of those that i don't know why you wouldn't pick the one that had the most likely to have a good response yeah i definitely noticed the same thing there were there were several events that came up and basically said do you want to make this guy better or not and but it's kind of like, well, yes. <laughs> well, but here's the thing: then you then you obviously weren't guarding enough of other people's kids. This is, because, this is true. Because <laughs> yeah, a lot of times they are kind of do you make them better or not? Although a lot of times it's also a question: do you want the person honest or deceitful? And deceitful has its advantages, you know. I mean, oh yeah, could, deceitful is a choice. But but a lot of times, what was happening to me is like, so I would be guarding. Uh, you know, one of my grandkids or something. I'd be raising one of my grandkids. And this is someone who's going to be like third or fourth in the line of succession or something, and they could just be a troublemaker. And I'm pretty happy with the air situation we got right now. So I'll totally like... 
I will traumatize the shit out of this poor kid. <laughs> like, you know, this person was caught telling a lie, and it's just like rain down nuclear fire on this kid. Just oh. and so, like, it's a viable strategy to basically like engage in strategic child abuse. <laughs> because I think, I think this game is bringing out the worst in everyone. Yeah, because when they inherit, you're gonna have this broken soul, you know, taking over uh, this this broken soul of an adult who uh, won't cause any troubles uh, or will be less able to cause problems for your, for your chosen heir. Uh, mm-hmm. So so I found those decisions a little interesting. I do, but I, I, the central point stands. There's, there's probably too few of them. Uh, I, I did find they brought me into the story a little bit. I do wish that story had maybe more twists and turns. Um, although a lot of, you know, a lot of the biggest twists in, and turns in the story came in sort of the things you can do uh, you know, diplomatically between nobles, like um, you know, so one of the one of the signal events in one of my games was, uh, you know, I had labored, you know, I'd labored mightily to set up this marriage between uh, my heir and uh, you know the 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 Countess of Fife, and you know they married. And then shortly after my duke died, I you know I inherited, and so suddenly like my wife was the countess of Fife and Fife and everything, and our kid was going to be the count of Fife and the duke the, the duke of Moray. So I was going to like at, you know it was a pretty it was a nice get like Fife's an important county in in Scotland, so so it was a good deal and everything was going great except um, you know like no sooner had we had we like we had our firstborn than the new king. Uh, just imprisoned my wife, uh, and I was kind of like, like, "What the fuck, dude? Like, come on!" Um, but so he was making a land grab too, though. He, his whole plan was he, you know, he imprisoned her, he seized her lands on some trumped up charge, and the entire thing was sort of going down the drain. Like suddenly, my kid, you know, didn't have, uh, you know, he wasn't eligible to inherit five. Uh, you know, now belonged to the king. And at that point, it was like. You know, well that you know that's not going to stand. Uh, so I make another marriage, and you know, start like it, it triggers this whole like it triggers this whole chain of events where now I'm like, okay, who else can I marry who might hate the king? Now it's gonna now it's time to plot. You know, now I'm gonna you know, you know I'm gonna kick this guy's ass for what he pulled. <laughs> um, and one of my sons now had uh, my, the son I'd had with my first wife uh, had you know a really good claim to Fife, so I could. That was Cassus Belly against the king, and so I was able to, um, I was able to wait until just the right moment when the kingdom was weak, and then I declared war, and uh, you know I, I was able to basically you know break the king and uh, mm-hmm. force him to turn over that land. Yeah, something I really wonder. I uh, in in the big game that I played, I played as uh, the king of Sweden, and I I wonder if playing as just the duke of some county somewhere would actually be a lot more fun than playing the king because then you have the pressure coming from above and the pressure from from below um i think when when you do have complete control as the king you don't really have to worry so much about things like your your wife getting imprisoned and and for that reason there's there's fewer things you just have to worry about so i i wonder I mean, how many guy, how many games have you guys played, um, either as as the king or somebody that is actually a vassal of someone else? 
Um, I played two games all the way through. As I said, one was the Duke of Transylvania, and the other was the Duke of Aquitaine, I believe. Um, southeastern France, which, yeah, I believe is Aquitaine. And in both of those cases, you know, I, it, it wasn't just that there was pressure from above and below, but it was also that you had the opportunity to rise above and take a much bigger title for yourself. Like, I don't think the King of Sweden was ever going to be much beyond the King of Sweden, mm -hmm. uh, unless you really got into the Holy Roman Empire, whereas it, when I managed to get my Duke of Aquitaine to become the King of Aragon, that was a, a pretty big deal for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I played a the the Duke of Moran Scotland. Um, I played a game as an Italian noble. Uh, you know, I think it was Modena. Uh, that, that's where things started. And boy, the, the, is that a viper's nest? That was almost too small scale, to be honest. <laughs> uh, and then I started a game as the King of France. And yeah, so there were a couple. There were a couple things going on. Like you know, my my experience with playing at these three scales is that there were so few pieces in my game as like a, as as a small Italian noble that ninety percent of the game was just watching. Like just like you know, crank up time compression and just wait for another generation to cycle through because. There wasn't that much to do. Like I didn't have that many pieces to control, and I wasn't powerful enough to drive many events. So it was just kind of reactive and a, a waiting game. You know, my game as the du as as a duke, that was kind of the perfect place because it was small scale enough that I was able to sort of track everything, and I had yeah pressure from above, pressure from below. I was sort of engaged. I was loosely engaged in like international politics because I had to sort of track what thing what was going on with like Norway and England. But I was also really enmeshed in local politics of figuring out, like, you know, who was going to run the northern part of Scotland. Uh, and so that was, that was a really satisfying experience. I tried to play the King of France maybe too early, and maybe, maybe I should go back to try and, trying to play a king. But there were a couple problems there. One is that, like, a huge noble family, going back to the interface issues I, I described earlier, like, the more the bigger your family and the more connections you have and royals have a ton it gets really hard to form that sort of intimate connection that you enjoy with some of your characters some of you know some of their families starting as a, starting as a king was kind of like being dropped in the middle of uh you know this 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 huge crowded room where i didn't know anybody it was a bunch of strangers that kind of kept me out of it and then yeah the the other issue is that there were too many... As king, you simply have too many places where you can sort of tilt the field in your favor. You know, you're almost like... You know, you have, you have too much You have too much power. You know, if, like, if a power play goes wrong as the king, you're still the king and most of your nobles, you know, will probably stand by you. So it's a matter of, like, fending off the odd revolt and, you know, make, like, most of us making sure that succession goes smoothly. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I found, you know, in my game as a duke much more satisfying mix of uh, politics and character stuff and uh, a manageable scale. Yeah, that was kind of the impression I got. I should probably go back and play uh, another another long game as one of these uh, lesser lesser leaders just to uh, get more of the more of the feel for that that part. Um, one of the other things I'm curious about is what you guys thought of uh, the combat in the game. Um, I've I found it to I found the actual battles themselves to be a little odd. Um, you have these you have this little window where it shows uh, you have a center and then a left and a right flank and 
it it kind of almost seems like window dressing and <laughs> I, I don't know about you guys but when whenever i fought a battle I, I i never really understood what was going on there or if it even mattered i i couldn't even tell if you were supposed to be able to control that in any way because i felt like maybe you could and there were some tooltips or some pop-ups that indicated that you could but i never actually did that and i it would be weird to me, given the scope of the rest of the game, if you could get into that much detail of those little battles. Right. Your only control, I think, is appointing commanders for each wing. I got the impression that you could, like, say, okay, this wing skirmish, this wing attack, that kind of thing. And I never saw how to do that, if that was the case. Maybe it was, like, there were some residual tooltips or whatever from when that had been planned. Or, I don't know, but... I, there was the, I had the impression that I could exert more control than seemed at all necessary in any way. Yeah, one of the other things I felt was a little bit odd, um, uh, and this may have been something that was addressed in uh, more recent patches, but uh, when I played the, the big long game as Sweden, I found that hiring mercenaries was almost kind of like a, a win button in a way. Um, I ended up embroiled in a war with Norway, and uh, they had uh, an army that was a fair bit larger than my own. And once my armies in the field were defeated, I thought, well, that's it. I'm going to have to give up territory. I'm going to lose some prestige, and, you know, it's, it's a bummer, but I'll, I'll, I'll just have to deal with it. And then I noticed I could hire... 2,500 mercenaries for 50, you know, 50 ducats or whatever, and suddenly I had, you know, a brand new army that proceeded to defeat the Norwegians, and the game just completely changed, and that it felt a little bit weird. Um, okay, so that didn't bother me. Um, I actually kind of liked that. So... If we're talking about the military game, I think the battles are kind of, you know, you can appoint wing commanders and, uh, you know, army army group center commanders. Not wing commanders, like like the, <laughs> the video game. Like, you know. Like, like, that just came out of GOG. That's awesome. <laughs> Colin I'm, Blair and his pal Hobbs and, like, go kick ass. Uh, I got Spirit on the left. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. I, I would so play. I, I, I would so play a wing commander strategy game. There was one. Um, there was not. Stop lying. There was one. I never played it. It wasn't very good, supposedly, but there was one. Really? Yep. Yeah, I, I will go to Wikipedia and see if I can dig up the name. Okay, dig that up. Well, so the <laughs> the real military game is raising troops, and it's all about like making sure like your holdings can raise a lot of levies, and it gets really problematic because if you're noble in the middle, your king can raise your levies too. So when you need your troops to put down a rebellion or something, oh, they're all off on a crusade in Antioch. Great. You know, you can be totally screwed that way. Mm. But I like the idea that, yeah, mercs can be hugely, like, hugely powerful, but one, it takes a long time to raise the money to pay for mercs and it kind of scales in an interesting way like at a really small if it's a small scale war yeah you can turn the tide of war with like 50 gold pieces and you can hire the breton band or something it's gonna have like 2500 troops and that'll be hugely powerful if you're fighting another you know petty noble or something Try to bring that into a war with another powerful duke or you know try to have some effect in an ongoing war against a, a European great power, that doesn't matter at all. Um, 
and so you can hire larger groups for even more money. But you know, again, it's it's sort of like if you have the money to hire a group, like a really powerful group, one of two things is is going on. You've either been really thrifty and you're absurdly wealthy for someone in your status, or you're playing the game at such a scale where maybe hiring, you know, twelve thousand mercenaries isn't the instant win that it would be, you know, normally. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I kind of enjoyed that. The, the other thing that's interesting is if you wait too long, you're like, okay, I'm going to hire mercenaries if and when I need them. And it turns out that your opponent already did. Yeah. Uh, so like the mercenary market gets booked up. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that I noticed is the main balancing factor is, you know, you're, you're, you're Sweden at war with Norway, whatever you win that war because you have the mercenaries. Maybe the next time you fight the war, all those mercenaries have already been hired in Germany. And then you don't have that thing. And this is, this happens a lot, especially when you're fighting the Muslims in Spain or in the Holy land, because there are those Knights Templar and, um, the faith mercenaries where you spend faith to get this incredibly badass army like they will just tear through everything even if they the enemy army is like half again as large um, sometimes even bigger than that but those those armies get beat up so instead of hiring I think they're 1700 each or not 70 um, 7500 each instead of getting that you might only be able to get 2000 but the faith cost is the same and, you know, if there's a crusade going on the other side, I usually played in Spain, where these things were fantastic for keeping these little tiny Christian kingdoms alive. If you're playing in Spain, they might all be hired in the Holy Land. And then, you know, you have no way of standing against these incredibly rich Muslim countries. Hmm. Um, so there, there's an element of randomness, but it's an element of randomness that makes sense within the game. Yeah, that was actually, that wasn't something that I noticed while I was playing, the fact that uh, the mercenaries, you were all drawing from the same pool, and there was some memory as to, well, this this group took damage, therefore they're now weaker. Um, so, I mean, maybe it was just because I was off in some far corner, um, but yeah, that, that does sound more interesting than what I was experiencing just in my own game. Well, I mean, it definitely ebbs and flows. Another interesting thing, I don't know if either of you found this, is that if you have a mercenary band that you can't pay, most of the time they'll just take off, but sometimes they will turn against you. Yep. <laughs> and that that was actually really good because when you beat them, you get a whole bunch of prestige and a whole bunch of gold, and they were actually really easy to beat the one time I had it. But if you had one of the larger companies and your army had been bled dry, then they could probably do some serious damage. Oh man, so so I never I never beat mercenaries after they turned on me because usually if if that happened like things were going pretty badly. So if you beat them, you get like what they surrender and you get the money back. What they it was I think it was like two hundred prestige and like five hundred gold, and I think the gold was one of those like changing sorts of things depending on the the size of your kingdom or whatever. Wow. Um, you know how it scales and when you lose a war and and you have to sue for peace. Um, that that money scales depending on I think the length of the game and the size of the size of your kingdom, but and it was similar with the mercenary. Uh, so, did you guys do much actual crusading in Crusader Kings? I did, I did a little bit when I was um, Transylvania. I managed to take one of the places right next to Jerusalem and. 
I think I got named account and then lost it almost immediately. However, when I was in Spain, it was, you know, constant. Um, there was just a, a really interesting ebb and flow between Christian and Islamic countries and um, the, the way that it has the cultures and religions of each province set up meant that you couldn't just like sweep through, take everything and expect to hold it, which also it, it is also a good way for the game to be balanced. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't actually uh, end up playing or playing around with it much. Uh, the Pope called for some crusades, and I told him to shove it, and uh, managed to avoid getting excommunicated. But I think uh, he was he was definitely not happy with me. And, and plus, being on the far northern side of Europe, I was kind of fighting my own crusade. But uh, it was not sponsored by the Pope. In in one of my games, John, um, the Golden Horde managed to take over like two-thirds of eastern Russia and swung up around through Scandinavia and almost took over the entirety of Sweden. <laughs> that would have made things interesting. Yeah, that was a really weird game with the, the whole Crusades and the Golden Horde, because there was a crusade against the Golden Horde for like 300 years in the heart of their lands that I have no idea why any pope would ever have suggested that. It was like, hey, <laughs> go into the middle of nowhere in the Ukraine and... To be, to be fair, a lot of crusades that were called historically had odd, overambitious goals, let's say. <laughs> That's true, but they were normally, you know, like rich lands that were accessible by water. Yeah. They were Egypt or Northern Africa or Spain or obviously the Holy Land. Yeah, most strategy games, it, it seems like uh, they, they seem to employ the term crusade rather liberally for any time the, the church is like, go smack down this, you know, either heretical or pagan uh, group over here. And they sort of treat that as like sort of like it's on par with sort of the crusades out into Jerusalem. I don't know if it really, that was really the case historically. You know, from, from what I understand, most of the time, you know, those tended to be more... Um, you know the the work of inquisitions let's say um, I, I think crusader kings 2 actually did a better job than any other strategy game i've seen attempt to do a crusade um i still think that it had some issues one of the biggest issues is that you can't play as the islamic countries and mm -hmm. i would love to have you know done my saladin <laughs> yeah i'm a little i'm a little i find that a little weird uh, oh, the, the, to be honest there'll be an expansion for that yeah <laughs> that, that's that's the impression that i got when i read one of the patch notes or something there was or an, an interview about what was coming in future patches or expansions was um although the the designer did say something like we didn't anticipate that so many people would want to play those countries and i'm How like really not anticipate that <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was that was one of the first things i looked at too um, oh, and I don't know when you guys played. I played a month, a month and a half ago when I was doing it for review, but when I checked the latest patch note because I thought about diving back in, there was a really interesting note saying that they had nerfed the Byzantines and strengthened the Turks, which would do a lot for making the Holy Land a more interesting and historically accurate place. How recently did that patch come out? Um, last two weeks, maybe? Okay, I might have. I, I think I might have missed that patch. Because yeah, right now the Byzantines have swallowed up Greece and uh, Turkey and uh, pretty much everything around the Caspian Sea. So yeah, uh, if you start at the very first year, the Byzantines were 
indestructible essentially. Um, my second game, or my second big game, I started 20 years in the future, or you know, 20 years from the start when um, the Sultanate of Rum, or Room, don't think I know how to pronounce that actually, when the Sultanate had half of um, half of Turkey, and that that kept the Byzantines under wraps a little more. But that was the game where the Golden Horde was crazy huge. So, so. I don't know, my, my reaction to the Crusades here, and this is something that happens to me in every game uh, where Crusades feature as, as part of gameplay, uh, going back to like medieval, uh, medieval Total War, Crusades just don't make a lot of sense. Like, There's really not much <laughs> upshot to going on a Crusade unless you're in the position of someone like Spain or something like that, where you've got the heathens on your doorstep and you need to, you need, you know, you, you need to go out there and you, you need to take them out. Um, in which case, yeah, that's that's hugely valuable. Aside, you know, with the exception of maybe just the, um, you know, either going for just prestige, uh, if you care that much about sort of the the meta game of of a paradox game, which frankly I have trouble doing, right? Like if it might it might burnish my king's credentials if he leads a successful crusade. I have a hard time caring about that when I would much rather, you know, as England, go beat the crap out of France or something like that. Uh, so I'm not really that keen on a crusade. Yeah, I think they could have definitely tried to add more of a tangi- tangible benefit to going on them, if even if it was only some relationship bonus with uh, other characters. Um, but yeah, it definitely doesn't feel like it's worthwhile, and that's one of the main reasons why I just told the Pope to stuff it every time he asked because there was clearly nothing in it for me and the risk of excommunication wasn't so in my face at the moment that I, I was that concerned about it. That's, that's also part of the reason that most games don't model them well is because if you can't come up with a reason in the game to do the crusade, how can you tell the AI to behave normally and go on something so stupid? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is this is the problem I think facing a lot of historical strategy games is you got to make this leap where like, you know, these people actually believe this shit, and that's the thing that's like, <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of the, the the thing you get hung up on if you're playing from the modern perspective. Like, you know, it's it's hard to model the fact that like you're a lot of your like Christian rulers firmly believed that they had to somehow find a way into heaven and you know they and they had to and, and they had to do whatever it took to maintain the pope's favor and really believe that it was important to go smite the heathen whereas we're like you know you you look at it and like yeah but you know you could you know you could invest in infrastructure at home basically <laughs> like, like, like you're yeah, like it's a medieval liberal yeah, we, we're, we're so beyond that now that we would never be involved in any kind of invasion of the Middle East when we could invest in our economy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, 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 have, we have different sorts of, uh, of, dog, of dogmatism, I suppose. Um, there there was, were some benefits. Like I said, the, the faith-based crusader armies were just incredibly useful and you would get faith if you were on that crusade and that was good for you know if you were a border nation as i was when i was transylvania and also spain though i didn't really try too hard unless i was um really really ensconced in a very peaceful situation i think i went on one attempt with my spanish army um 
On the other hand, since you mentioned the Pope, did either of you ever do any papal interactions? Because I didn't until I got excommunicated. And then I didn't care ever again. Yeah, so I didn't... Uh... Yeah, I didn't have too much to do with the Pope. I mostly tried to keep him happy and at arm's length once I got excommunicated. Um, you know, and that sucked. But no, I didn't I didn't <laughs> do too much with the Pope. Yeah, I think maybe if if nothing else, having some way of of showing that, you know, hey, the Pope's really upset. He might excommunicate you any any day now. You know, it's just some, it doesn't even need to be a, a gameplay effect, but just something that puts that thought in the mind of the player so that they're thinking, ooh, okay, maybe I need to do something to make this guy happy or else I'm going to be in trouble. It just seemed yeah. completely absent. It was just, you would have the, the, the pop-up boxes that would ask you to join or, or do a certain thing, and you could say yes or no, and then there was just really no feedback to that other than knowing, well, Pope's not happy but if if the threat of excommunication was seriously hanging over you and you felt like that was the case, I think that would actually change it quite a bit. I think the other thing that's kind of lacking is that I found it really hard to connect the goings on the going goings on in my court uh, you know who like the the spiritual advisors in my territory and everything the the, the clerical figures. I had a hard time connecting that to the actions of the papacy. Like, what was sort of lacking was a strong sense of, you know, well, this guy answers to this guy, and this guy's the cardinal, and this guy, you know, I, 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 there, there were too many degrees of separation between, like, whatever the hell's going on with the papacy, and then how that's going to trickle down to you. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that sort of, I mean, that, that I think more, did more, more than anything, uh, like, turned me off from, like, trying to play the, the papacy game. Because most of the time, like, you know, the, the, the Pope was just someone I didn't want the Pope to know my name, you know. <laughs> uh, so I just sort of kept my head down, that was that was a smarter play. It's like but the principal the, of Europe. Yeah, pretty much. But, <laughs> so I didn't, so I didn't actually end up bothering too much w w with the papacy. Uh, but also because there just weren't there weren't clear uh, interaction points the same way there were with you know the the general like uh, feudal politics that you're dealing with. Yeah, I, I I really like Crusader Kings on the whole, but I do think that the biggest flaw in the game is that it doesn't give you a very complete picture of what's going on or what the ramifications of certain actions will be. And I think that's more pronounced with the interaction with the papacy. But it's also true just in the in the normal character relationship part of the game. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure just about everybody who's played has some example of when they tried to get somebody to inherit the title and it just didn't happen the way they expected it to. And... You know, with with a little bit more work on the UI or presentation of some sort, that could have been explained. Saying, "Hey, by the way, you know, if you're going to make this decision, it's going to have this effect. You pr probably don't want that." I think that would really that would help make the game more understandable. And I think that's the biggest barrier entry in this, uh, which is just understanding what's going on and what the ramifications of your decisions are going to be. That's that's actually some of the time that was really fun. It was like a dwarf fortress kind of thing, where it was just like, I have no idea, or I had no idea that that was going to be what happened. That actually happened to me twice. Um, 
where it made my game really interestingly weird. Um, <laughs> one of them was when I had a duke who only had a single daughter, and there was another duke who only had a single son, and I thought that it would be a great idea for them to marry and join their crowns, but I didn't click on the right sort of marriage, which would have allowed the, my daughter to inherit my kingdom. So basically, if I had let that stand, my game would have ended. And so I had to scramble for the next 10 years to, eventually I think I set it to an elective system. And this whole, this whole plan I had, which was, you know, I thought it was a fantastic plan. It was like jo the joining of uh, Ferdinand and Isabella to unite Spain or whatever. Um, uh, no, that would have been an epic disaster. But that, trying to fix that disaster was actually some of the most fun that I had. Um, at another time, I didn't know that when you have a ward take the character, or when you have a, you can have a ward who takes the characteristics and culture of their, um, um, yeah, guardian. Yeah, the guardian. And, um, I had a Mongol princess with fantastic stats that I decided to have one of my random sons marry. And her stats were so fantastic, I just kept handing over all my kids to her. And <laughs> oh, and then they oh all became no. Muslims. And, and then they all became <laughs> Mongols. So they're like, there's like a three generation line of Mongol kings of Spain with their full Mongol names and with more rebellion because they were completely different. Um, they were not Castilian, which was where I was at that point. And but they had dope the, stats. They, 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 yeah, they did, and at least initially. But uh, <laughs> for as long it was as they just lived, too ridiculous, but still a lot of fun. No, and, and that's the thing, like you know. So on the one on the one hand, like a lot of this game can be like really dry. And you're looking at like you know genealogy charts and just fast forwarding time and like just watching the taxes come in, whatever. But if you like, you know embrace the fiction here like you get these amazing stories like i mean just picture like you know the mongol kings of spain like you know like showing up in like you know silk shirts and like you know basically like like trying to turn everyone into like horse archers or something like that like that's hilarious <laughs> I mean, that, that is this game more than any other game that i think i've ever played encourages that kind of storytelling and that's, a, that's like one of my first game writing articles was a piece for The Escapist. I called it about the middle level. When you take out this middle level of narrative in a game, especially a strategy game, the player automatically starts filling that in. And this game does that so much better than everything else that I've ever seen that like I, I can't help but tell stories about it when I think about it. Like in Civilization, it's you get that somewhat in the Total War games. You get that somewhat in um, some sports games you get that but nothing quite like this. And I, I think a lot of that is its focus on dynastic family politics and people and what they want as opposed to what some abstract nation state or budding kingdom wants. All right, that seems like a great place to uh, leave off the discussion. So before we, before we call it a night, uh, I want to remind you that this weekend is PAX East. And Three Moves Ahead is going to be there with a panel. On Sunday at 4.30 p.m. in the Cat Theater, you can join me, Troy, and Julian, uh, plus a superb group of guests that includes, uh, well, John here. Uh, you're still coming, right, John? Uh, that is the plan if I, uh, if I make it, if I survive the plague that I've contracted. Yeah, you better, you better <laughs> survive the plague. I'll just, I'll just have some stranger impersonate you. 
at, uh, <laughs> at, at PAX, and then you're just gonna you're gonna find out you said awful, awful things. Oh, that that happens all the time, anyways. Uh, we're also going to have uh, you know Paradox's Chris King, who's been on the show, and our friend Rob Davio, uh, creator of Risk Legacy. The panel is called Strategy Games: What's Changing, What Needs to. And we will be preaching some gospel there. Uh, so be sure to be there Sunday, 4.30 in the Cat Theater. Uh, no promises, but since we are the last panel uh, in the Cat Theater for all of PAX, basically, we should be able to mill around a bit uh, after the panel. And there's even talk that we might have some sort of like mass exodus for dinner and drinks uh, in lieu of a proper meetup. Uh, so anyway, uh, hope to see you there. Uh, we're really excited about this panel. Uh, and it, it's great to, for three moves ahead to have a to have a presence at PAX East. Uh, so re- really looking forward to it. It should be a great time. Yeah, I have a quick announcement. Yeah, go for it. The game was called Wing Commander Armada. Wing Commander <laughs> Armada. I thought that was okay. That name rings a bell, but I thought you still piloted stuff in that. It looks like you, it's an action slash strategy game. I I think that. There are various different modes, that, and one of them is like a pure strategy mode. But like I said, I never played it, but it existed. Man, why couldn't that series have just... I, I, I don't know, I'm of two minds about that, right? So, Wing Commander 3 is such <laughs> an amazing end to that trilogy, and I kind of think the story should be like stopped there. But I find it so interesting that... Uh, what's his name? Admiral... Um, Tolwyn. Tolwyn. Oh my god. That... Basically, like the the post war scenario for Admiral Talwin is the guy loses his mind, like he's this the warrior without a war, and I find that such an interesting like coda to the Wing Commander series. Um, I I even like Wing Commander Prophecy. It was not you know a great narrative game, but it's a hell of a lot of fun to fly around and blow up those bug ships. Yeah, so everyone who's making fun of consumerist readers, uh, you know, calling EA the worst company of the world, to them I say, remember Origin. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's right. Consumerist readers. Passionate Origin fans. But that's the reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, so... But Wing Commander aside, Cat Theater, 4.30, Sunday, three moves ahead panel. Be there or be even more square than the average 3MA panelist. Um, <laughs> all right, that does it for us. Um, huge thanks to uh, John Rowan for joining me tonight. Uh, it was great to discuss this game with you. You've been, you've been a great panel. All right, thanks, Rob. Yep, it was fun. All right. Good night, everyone.